welcome to Conversations About Life. Well, thank you, Brad, for getting together with me. And My pleasure. I enjoyed, you were speaking at um, a church just uh, a couple of days ago, and I enjoyed listening to that. Uh, you're... What you're involved in is seems to be, from best I can understand it, multicultural um, relationships, church planting, and then doing that uh, through sports. You also are involved in sports ministries. Um, you're married. I think it's five children. Five children. That's right. <laughs> Actually, seven. I my two oldest are married, so we now officially have seven. Hopefully, on our way to ten. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, well, you you were um, speaking, you know, about Ephesians. That's yes. what you opened up your your message on on Sunday, and talking about uh, reaching across um, racial difference, cultural differences, mm-hmm. making friends, um, entering into other people's pain. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, that's all something I'd like to, um, kind of get into, but I guess as I was listening to you, one question that, um, came up for me was, well, you know, you come across as someone who's, uh, full of zeal, you know, for what you're doing and, um, someone who, um, perhaps has a close spiritual connection with God. And um, that's a question that I have, um, so just kind of really plunging right into things, but, you know, how does a person who has tasted things of God, such as, you know, I think Paul uses those words, um, you know, he's um, a person who knows what it is to be converted, knows what it is to have a changed life. Mm. But um, since then, maybe um, the uh, relationship, the connection with God is maybe more intellectual. Mm. Um, and um, and sometimes that's hard to, to know uh, when everything is going wonderful, mm. everything seems wonderful. But like mm. when those things that support us, those comforts in life are yes. taken away when we're sick and or, or whatever. Um, and then we feel alone mm-hmm. and we realize, well, that spiritual connection isn't everything it should be, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So do you have any thoughts about, um, so how is that for you, you know, your spiritual connection with God? Uh, and um, do you have any thoughts about how um, to nourish and grow that? Sure. Well, Will, let me first of all just say thank you. It's a great opportunity to be together. It's great to meet you and look forward to being able to have this conversation together. Yeah, you know, I love your question. It's it's uh, the questions that it's at the heartbeat of what I've been speaking about uh, for most of my life. And that is transformation. How does transformation really take place? And, you know, in our in our American culture, it's so easy to have information. And we think information drives everything. We have so much of our our corporate databases that have information about every decision that we make. But how is 
transformation different from information? And I'm just going to tell a story. Last year, 10 days before my daughter got married, uh, I had gone in for just a routine physical. And uh, that routine physical found out that uh, I had a little swelling in my abdomen. And my blood tests showed a little bit of a spike in my white blood cell count. And um, I bike quite a bit. I bike 100 to 125 miles a week. And and so I was biking, and the doctor said, you know, your spleen is three inches too big, and it's full of white blood cells. As a matter of fact, your white blood cell count is 644,000. Normal is 10,000, Brad. How are you even walking? <laughs> and this was 10 days before my daughter was married. And so, you know, uh, well, what happened in my life at that time was transformation. I began to see all I really wanted to do was walk my daughter down the aisle and see her get married. And I was in a hospital bed at Washington University. And so uh, I began to see the reality of what really is important in life. And I think there's different times like that that every one of us experience in our lives. God allows us to, to get out of the routine of what we're doing in our normal everyday lives and see what really matters. And I, I think we're in a season like that right now as well. Uh, with everything that's happening with COVID and racial issues right now in America, we need each other more than ever. And what Africa taught us after living in Africa for 13 years was community. Uh, we say in South Africa, Umuntu Gubuntu Gubantu, which means a person is a person because of people. And so uh, in my own life, I got to walk my daughter down the aisle. And I've been on the number one clinical trial at Washington University for the last uh, 15 months, 16 months, and all my white blood cell counts have been healthy and normal. But in the midst of those situations of life, do we really believe that God is in control? And so that's 40 years ago, there was a time in my life where I was in a similar situation in college, where I couldn't control life. I couldn't manage it myself. And there was like a Damascus Road experience like Paul had in Acts chapter 9, where I saw Jesus very clearly. I saw that uh, I needed him, and it wasn't about my performance. And, you know, you talk about sport ministry. Um, we work with four World Cups and one Olympics, and we work with a lot of very skilled athletes. And they may be very skilled in their skills in soccer or cricket or rugby, but how about life? How about life skills? And, and I think that's really the transformation that happened to me 40 years ago. I was on the course of wanting to be an executive on New York and uh, make my millions by the time I was 29. And following the values and success of the world, where the calling card of our Lord is, He, he loves the poor. He loves widows. He loves orphans. He loves foreigners. And that's his heart. And so when I was 18 years old, I came to a place in my life where I said, I want to have your heart, God. And I want to not just talk about that and give information. I want to live it. I want to live out your life through me. So here I am. Use me. And so I was in the corporate world for 14 years. And then, again, I'd... I'd I'd gone on a short-term mission trip to France in 1984 when I was in college, and I was willing to go and be able to be on full-time mission, and yet at the same time, uh, 
God made it very clear, I want you in the business world. So I helped start Panera Bread Company. I was an executive at Citibank. I worked in the corporate world, and it was a, like Billy Graham says, that uh, the marketplace is going to be the next strategic place for seeing the gospel lived out. And so I was very involved in that and helped make disciples in the marketplace. And that's really what my heartbeat is, is life on life, one-to-one, disciple-making. Second Timothy 2, 1 and 2 says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus, and the things that you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust a faithful man who will be able to teach others also. And so that's really what my life these last 40 years has been about, is investing life on life, one-to-one with people. And God's, you know, here I am, just an average guy from Minnesota who... Uh, you know, I loved playing hockey and sports. My dad was uh, all-state basketball, baseball, football, and I played hockey <laughs> and soccer. And uh, my dad uh, was one of my best friends. But he influenced me. Uh, when I was 16, my dad had that born-again experience in his life, and I thought, wow, what happened to my dad? <laughs> And if this tough macho dad of mine is humble enough and hungry enough and thirsty enough to say, I need the gospel of grace, how about me? So I I started reading the Bible, but it made no sense. And that's when a couple navigators of my floor came around and shared the bridge illustration. And I saw Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that it wasn't by my performance. It was by the gift, the grace of God. That the grace of God empowers me to fulfill what I could never fulfill through the law. And so that's the message of reconciliation, creation, fall, redemption, reconciliation, that Christ is reconciling all things to himself. And so that's really my role right now with the Evangelical Free Church. I serve as the multicultural director, as you mentioned. And it's not just about racial reconciliation, bringing the nations, but it's bringing all things. How do we reconcile all things to Jesus Christ? Because he is Lord of Lord and King of Kings. And if that's the case, how do we live out our lives? Francis Schaeffer spoke about that in, in his classic book, How Then Shall We Live? And in that, he talks about this great divide that we often have, that we know in our heads, but how do we live it out in our lives? And so for most Christians, there's a huge gap between information and obedience. Um, and John 14, 21 says, He who has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. So often many of us in the church know the information, but how do we live the information? And that's what our culture needs today. We need that authentic Christianity. That's why I've been so involved with the business world and sports and, and, um, and living out the gospel where people are. Jesus called fishermen. He didn't call Pharisees. He called fishermen. And so in the midst of calling those fishermen, he, uh, he said, follow me. And so that's what I've had the privilege of doing, Will, is following him. Little, little guy from Minnesota following him. Uh, and he's taken, he's taken my wife and I. And by the way, my wife and I just celebrated 30 years of marriage. So oh, tell you what, she's the one that gets credit because following me. She, she said that before we got married, I'll follow you. <laughs> She has 37 countries, and God's been very gracious to care for us. So thank you, Will. Good question. So you 
you had this experience where you saw Jesus and His mm-hmm. grace clearly. And did you say you were in college at the I time? I was 18 years old. 18 I was a years freshman old. in college. That's okay. right. And then you spent, um, I think, like 14 years in the business world. Yes, that's right. And and you were um, trying to live out the gospel in the business that's world. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, so, what does that look like when you're just at day-to-day business type of work and you're wanting to live out the gospel? It's a great question. I think it really comes down to excellence. It's so easy for us to put a Christian label on ourselves and to say, well, I'm a Christian because of that. It's automatically excellent. But I think there's a dynamic in our lives of how do we, um, how do we live out in word and deed that our words and our deeds match up. And again, I'm I'm a sinner by nature and by choice, and so uh, when I do mess up and when I do fail, uh, as a follower of Christ, am I willing to pursue repentance and reconciliation? And I think that's at the heart of it, is running to the cross. Am I willing to run to the cross? And and Paul said in Acts 24, 16, in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and before men. So that was one of my driving verses, Will, in the corporate world. Um, you know, working at Citibank, uh, six years, I thought I was going to go international. My desire was to go as a tent maker and live cross-culturally international and be sent by Citibank. And and I met with an executive who had done that. He says, oh, Brad, I, I would encourage you just to go as a missionary. He said, I... I raised my kids in Latin America, and we were always on the lookout for kidnappers. And he said, I, I would just encourage you to go as a poor missionary. <laughs> and so uh, after six years at Citibank, I, uh, my dad was diagnosed with cancer. And we were going to go back up to Minnesota, but we were helping to plant a church here, Twin Oaks Presbyterian, uh, 141 in Big Bend, and the pastor said to me, Brad, let the dead bury the dead. We need you here. Help us to plant this church. And I was working in the corporate world at the time. And um, Citibank had given me a transition. I'd been with uh, Panera. I just, you know, helped see Panera take off, and Panera was just about to be sold. So I had a six-figure salary to move back, back up to Minneapolis and be a consultant. And, and I said no to that, to stay here and uh, help see the church planted and and uh you know i worked in the consulting world and so the way that worked out was i was a consultant and i had 14 guys from all over the world working with me as consultants and they were at merits or mastercard or anheuser-busch and they were it consultants but many of them had just come to the united states and didn't know anybody in st louis so we provided that bridge for people mm-hmm. And, you know, Will, I guess I should probably share that part of my story, part of my background is I was born three days, uh, I was born three days before Martin Luther King's famous I Have a Dream speech in Washington, D.C. JFK was assassinated when I was three months old, and and then Robert Kennedy when I was six, and and then when I was about seven or eight, uh, Brian's song, that song, or that movie Brian's song about Gail Sayers and Brian Piccolo is a white and black football players rooming together. I read that book 17 times. I watched the movie over and over. And that was a core value in my life uh, that really developed when I was young. I really wanted to have a black friend. Growing up in Minnesota, that wasn't, uh, that wasn't commonplace. Uh, and so long and the short of it is is that I, um, 
I'm saying that that's been part of my story. Part of my story is being uh, able to cross into other cultures and meet people where they are and learn. So the three L's, to listen, to learn, and to love. And so in the corporate world, I did that same thing. And so when I was in a sales manager and IT consulting and I had 14 guys from all over the world working with me I absolutely loved entering into their stories but not just their stories also their pain uh, listening to the pain for instance uh, some of the guys from India that I work with um, had uh, marriages that were arranged <laughs> and they would come to me and they'd say hey you and your wife seem to be doing very well tell me about marriage and We'd have them over to our house, and, and you know, we've had people to our home who've uh, never been into Americans. Only one out of ten internationals ever get invited to an American's home. And so hospitality, just practicing hospitality of loving people and welcoming people. Um, in the corporate world, uh, it was the same way. There's such a performance mentality. And how do I find my identity, not in how I perform, but in what's already been accomplished for me? And that's the freedom that grace provides. That that grace and that gracious living can make people hungry and thirsty. And so I had a number of people. I work with CBMC, Christian Businessmen's Committee, and we ran Operation Timothy in a lot of our, our small group structures. Um, again, working with the navigators, the navigators in CBMC, most of the material from CBMC was put out by the navigators, so I partnered and worked with them. So... Um, I basically served as a trainer where I would train and mentor other uh, Timothys mm -hmm. who then in turn would teach others and that was the second Timothy 2, 1 and 2. So basically living out the disciple making process in the corporate world. So it would have been probably easier for me just to go into the uh, ministry but uh, through the Navigator ministry I was encouraged to live it out. Uh, Ezra 7.10 says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it, and then to teach it. So there's a lot of pastors that have just gone right into ministry, and that's great. God's called them in that purpose. But my heart will was to live it out in an everyday life, and to mess up, and to fail, and to learn, and to learn to grow in grace, and to let Christ dwell in me. So Colossians 1.27 says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. He also said, destroy this temple and three days later I'll build another and he is the temple but what's amazing about that is he lives and dwells in us so we are his temple and he wants to use us and he uses us in places that we wouldn't have expected so uh, God has placed people in the corporate world for a reason and I, I want to encourage business leaders today how strategic their role is in our culture to not just say they're Christian, but to really model grace so that it, it it allows Christ to be clearly seen in the marketplace. So it sounds like you're doing that as well, Will, with your son. So I'm encouraged to hear that. Um, you know, you mentioned um, your father who had cancer. Mm. And, um, and there are those words of Jesus, you know, let the dead bury their dead. Yes. But... Um, on the other hand, there's the words of Paul saying, you know, uh, family members have a duty to their own uh, family members. Um, so, so. Great question. Yeah, how, how, <laughs> yeah. how, how did you how did you work that out? Great um, question. 
You know, God's given me a godly wife that I love, and she's uh, gifted as a nurse. She, she's, uh, uh, she's got a, a discernment about her, too, that I really value. And so Amos 3.3 says, Do two walk together unless they agree to do so? So we walk together on it. We pray together. Mm-hmm. And, <clears throat> and I also ask my dad. I seek counsel from the counsel of whom it affects. And, you know, obviously my my life, our lives may have been much different if we had made a decision to go up to Minnesota and and be there. We in 1997 is when we heard the call to go to South Africa, mm-hmm. and my dad went into remission. And he was like, "Lord bless you, son. Go. I'm, I'm, I know this is something God's called you to do. So we're fully supportive." And that was 1997. And you know, we had to raise your support and get ready to go. But it was a hard decision. I mean, it really was. And and. Yet the peace of God met us, and I think that's probably the key aspect, Will, is that we just seek his face and ask him, and the Spirit will guide and lead. You see through the book of Acts, you're exactly right, uh, you know, as far as caring for family, that was, our, that was our burden. And we actually came back from Africa to help care for Patty's mom. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was 90, and that was a major driving reason why we came back, to care for Patty's mom and and um, yeah, know how to live that out. So uh, we had three more years with her. She lived to be 93, almost 94. And yeah, she's a great woman. But that's a great comment. How do we balance family and ministry? And that's always going to be a challenge that we really need to depend upon the Holy Spirit to guide and lead and direct us in that. And that's where we were. Well, we we just made a decision by faith and. But I got to tell you one quick story here. In 2001, my dad would call me three times a week when his cancer had really progressed. And he'd say, I miss you, kid. When are you coming home so we could play golf? I, I, I'm the oldest of five, and, and I, uh, you know, my youngest sister's still there around my dad all the time. But uh, the dynamic of that was um, I really missed him. And I, there were times when I cried. And, and, in South Africa and and so we went back only after being on the field for two years in South Africa we went back right after 9-11 that was an experience in itself but we went back for 12 weeks three months um, and we had some sweet time together with my dad and my wife Patty was pregnant with her youngest Timmy and uh, what happened was that Timmy was born January 13th my dad went in the hospital just after Timmy was born and then my dad went home January 24th, so we were able to be there. And um, God's timing was perfect, and I was able to speak at his funeral. And But one story I'm trying to tell is that when we came back from South Africa after that, I was adjusting the antenna on our roof in a two-story house for rugby, so all the students were coming over for a rugby game. And I was just in the antenna, and my foot slipped off a rafter and it went through the ceiling, and it broke through the, uh, the ceiling tile, and I left a huge hole. And um, I had to replace that, but I didn't have time with the busy student ministry, so I put this bag over it to keep it from, and it was warm and everything, so it wasn't an issue, it wasn't leaking. But I had that bag over there for about two months before I finally had time to get to it. And I'd lay in bed, and I'd look up, and I'd see that, and it was a reminder of how I felt that my dad was gone. He wasn't no longer with me. And 
as one of my very good friends, that was a constant reminder. So when I finally did repair it, I had to, I had to structure it in such a way I had to put another cross beam across it. And what that hole had been left with was a cross. It was a great picture that it's only the cross that fills that gap between my emptiness that I felt from losing my dad and the fulfillment of knowing that he's with our Savior. And it was my dad that really impacted me with the gospel. Uh, still when I was 16 years old, you know, he was my coach as a kid growing up, and, and <clears throat> often I felt like I couldn't please him. He was a bricklayer. He built most of the city of Minneapolis, and I worked hard for my dad. But long and the short of it, there were times growing up as a kid where I didn't feel like I could please him as the oldest. And, and yet in Christ, uh, I saw that I didn't have to. It had already been accomplished. And that's what my dad really passed on to me. So living that same way as a father, um, running to the father, running to our heavenly father in such a way where, yeah, that's what I did. I ran to the, my heavenly father knowing that my earthly father was no longer here. And there's, you know, there's a lot of internationals that we work with that are trying to get visas to become American citizens. And <clears throat> we often talk, well, we don't know if we're going to be able to give you a, 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 you know, be able to get a green card or a visa. But what we do know is that you can become a citizen of a heavenly father whose kingdom will never fade and um, whose kingdom is eternal and it's much more satisfying and fulfilling than the American dream that you think will satisfy you. And so that's part of our dynamic in working cross-culturally. So I have a lot more that I could share on that uh, as far as cross-cultural ministry goes, but that's part of that citizenship, that we are citizens of a king. And just uh, listening to you, I was kind of thinking about how so the difference between Paul's letters and Jesus. Like mm. Jesus had really radical sayings, like mm. um, like the one you brought up, yes, about, <laughs> and about selling all that you have and uh, giving it to the poor and following me. And then when Paul was writing to new converts, you get the impression that he's like. Um, you know, don't don't try to change your situation so much. But now you're you're just different in that situation, mm. and um, you know, do, work, um, tell the truth, um, love one another, give up licentiousness and uh, anger and stuff like that. Yeah. So there, it almost looks it looks kind of different. But I guess it it just takes some discernment to kind of understand just what God's called us to and how to live that out. You know, I worked for many years as a campus pastor with university students in Africa. And uh, I was uh, at the University of Cape Town for five years, and I had 30 guys in my Bible study. I was the only non-African. I had 30 Africans in our study. And Africa really taught me how to be able to to live out caring for family because there's a very strong sense of community in the African context. Hmm. And, and a very strong sense of suffering. And so, you know, one of the beautiful pictures that you see that brings both Jesus and Paul together, because, I, you know, there can be a sense of misunderstanding, saying Jesus said this and Paul said this, but the consistency in both of them is suffering. And so what did Jesus say on the road to Damascus to Paul? I'm going to show him how much he gets to suffer for me. Mm-hmm. And so there's that theme of suffering that so often in our Western worldview we miss. There's a theme of suffering that 
that really takes us to that level of knowing the intimacy of Christ. Um, and, and my African friends and my African families taught us how to live that out. So let me just share a story with you. Uh, uh, one of my favorite stories is my friend Siabunga, who was a gang leader. He lost his dad when he was six months old. He didn't know his dad and grew up without a father. And the townships and the townships are shack houses right next to one another. And he grew up in a rough area of Cape Town. And uh, Cape Town's a city of about five million people, one of the most beautiful cities in the world. We lived there for 13 years. We still consider it home. We love it. But Siabunga was in a gang. He was a gang leader. He was shot in the stomach, breaking into a house. And uh, the owner of that house that shot him went to prison and said, I forgive you for what you've done. And I'm sorry that I had to shoot you. And I want you to forgive me. And he began to explain the gospel to him. And in the midst of that suffering that Sia saw, this guy said, I'm willing to pay for you to go to college. And I will not press charges if you're interested in this gospel of Jesus Christ, he can be your heavenly father. And Zia changed. The gospel met him in the midst of his suffering. And he was a changed man. And I, I remember the joy in Zia's life and the joy of our African brothers and sisters. What a, what a joy that there was in the midst of suffering. And, um, and so, you know, Zia loved modeling the gospel on campus but there was a time when we would walk on campus and I would be a white guy on campus and she would call me booty and other Africans would say that we're, we're not Christians would say you can't call him booty he's not African like us and she says oh no 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 you don't understand he's my he's my brother in Christ we're brothers in Christ and in Christ people from all nations can come and be part of his family and this guy didn't like that, so he smashed a glass on the side of Siabunga's head, and Sia got ten stitches, but Sia's culture is one that you must take this guy out. You must take revenge. So uh, I didn't hear from Sia for three days, and uh, in the midst of not hearing from Sia, Svidge, who is the national boxing champ and good friends with Sia, said, Brad, you got to talk to Sia. He's going to do something he's going to regret. And so I went to try to find him and found him. And uh, he said, I've been hiding from you, Malusi. My African name is Malusi, which means shepherd. And so uh, he says, I know what you're going to say to me. You're going to say to me that I need to forgive him. And I said, Sia, that would be the outcome of you really knowing and believing that this whole situation has already been taken care of at the cross. It's already accomplished. And you have peace. You don't have to do this. All you have to do is believe what's been already accomplished for you, and you'll be free. Otherwise, you'll be living with a burden the rest of your life of a poor decision. And uh, so he met with this guy that smashed the glass on the side of his head. He had 10 stitches on the side of his head, and, um, and he forgave him. And you could have seen ripple waves across our campus because that hostility that people had expected would happen didn't happen. It was accomplished already. It was done. And Sia saw that and he believed that. And he impacted this guy in a rich way. But the, the rich way that it impacted me was Sia showed me that he took scars from me. He was willing to take 10 scars, 10 scars on the side of his head from that glass saying, you're my friend, Brad. You're not only my friend, you're my brother in Christ. 
mm-hmm. he still carries those scars. Mm-hmm. And there's a Savior, Jesus Christ, that has done the same for us. Hmm. He took scars. He took scars for my pain, for my suffering. And so these momentary light afflictions that Paul talks about in Romans are just that. They're momentary light afflictions. You know, leukemia, it's a momentary light affliction. <laughs> God's got a greater plan. In the midst of that, joy is much greater. The joy of knowing that I'm part of a family, and that family uh, gives me the power to live out and welcome people from all nations. People from every tongue and tribe and people and nation get to be part of this family. And so that's what I have the privilege to be involved with on a full-time basis. Can you believe that? Uh, what a joy for me to be able to do that. But we're involved in many other ways, too, business and other areas where community transformation, yeah. So, um, yeah, it seems like a theme here is suffering, and in your message on Sunday it was suffering. And when I think of suffering, I've had experiences where I was going through some type of suffering mm. and felt alone. Yes. Like suffering can kind of sometimes make you feel isolated, like no one really knows or understands. Um, but then again, I can, you know, see the... Uh, the glory, I guess you would say, of like suffering, like in this story that you um, have relayed um, about, um, you know, that it's something great came out of it, you know. Yeah. Um, Paul, he talks about, um, well, I guess my question is, how do we um, take suffering, um, like even if it's just it's kind of something personal and we're, and it just feels like it's isolating us, it feels we feel alone in it. We don't feel close to God. Mm. Um, but um, Paul speaks about like um, letting um, th- these trials we go through have its full effect, mm. you know. Yeah. So how do we make the most of suffering um, so that it is good? I think he says let endurance have its full effect so yes. that you may become mature. Mm-hmm. So we we don't want our suffering just to kind of make us feel isolated. We want it to be useful and somehow, I guess, like, um, or anything you keep in mind or any th- approach you have to, uh, suffering that is helpful or do you have any thoughts about that? Well, I, I think your, your comments are, are very helpful, Will. And I, I would go to a theme of, uh, of the whole of scripture that nearness to God is really a blessing, but distance from God is seen as a curse. And so uh, even in Ephesians chapter 2, you say he took those who were near and those who were far off. And so uh, I love Isaiah 40 verse 11. It says, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them close to his heart. And he gently leads those who have young. And we prayed that passage for a long time. But thinking about that theme of letting the Lord carry me close to his heart, you saw Jesus often say, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I long to gather you like a mother hen gathers her chicks. But she would have none of it. And thinking about that, how, uh, how our own pride and our own sense of independence say, Okay, God, I can do this myself. <laughs> and, you know, even as a father with my young kids, uh, you know, I know them better than anybody else. We've been around them their whole lives. And yet there's times when they are trying to figure it out. And if they just come and say, you know what, Dad, what do you think? It, it may save them a lot of time and energy. And so 
the dynamic of that is when I look at suffering, knowing that uh, the Lord longs to be gracious to you, as Isaiah 30, verse 18 says, he sits on high to have compassion. How blessed are those who wait for him. And so there's this waiting process in the midst of suffering that's hard. Um, but Michael Card sings about a joy in the journey. Do I have joy in the midst of that journey? And that's what I'm trying to build together is this theme of not just suffering, but suffering in community. That a person is a person because of people. And so often in our individualistic worldview in the States, in the West, we, we want to be able to accomplish everything uh, through our own bootstrap, solo bootstrapa, our own performance, as opposed to saying, I really am thirsty and hungry and I need a community. I need help from people. And that's the contrast that I'm trying to build out here, Will. And, and let me just say that in a, in a Western worldview, we are very individualistic. And that's the tendency. I mean, we have, uh, even in our white evangelical culture, very individualistic view, whereas our black evangelical culture in America has much more of a communal aspect. And so one thing that George Yancey talks about in his book, Beyond Racial Gridlock, is our white evangelical and our black evangelical in America are farther apart than white uh, non-evangelical and black non-evangelical. What I mean by that is we're farther apart because one of us will hold to an individual view, the other will hold to a community view. In an African context, again, what we learned was that sense of how do I live in community and how do I suffer in community? And what I mean by suffering in community is, is that sense of, of knowing that uh, my suffering has a purpose. And so often we just think, okay, God, what are you doing? But God wants us to wait. And as we wait on him, as Isaiah 30 verse 18 says, how blessed are all who wait for you. Uh, what do we wait with? Do we wait with the word of God that really performs a work as First Thessalonians? You talked about Thessalonian, um, you know, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to work with your hands. Mm -hmm. uh, before that, he really talks about the word performing a work in you who believe. And so there's something that suffering does on the inside of us that we don't see. And that's what's eternal. You know, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. So how do I allow suffering to produce in me that which is not seen that God sees as very, very valuable? It's that precious and gentle, quiet spirit. And it's faith. What God values above all else is faith. He, he loves to see us trust him as a father. And so that's the sense of community and suffering that, you know, in Hebrews 5.8, it says that Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. And so that it's not just suffering by itself, but it's that sense of suffering and community. And, and we've seen some of that around the world with George Floyd's murder. I mean, you see the world was grieving over what they saw. And so how do we, as God's people, who I believe have a solution to racial gridlock, enter into that suffering and pain. We should be able to do that in community in a much deeper way. And I think that's part of that dynamic that may be going on here. And again, you know, just looking at things through the eyes of Africa and suffering, we entered into an apartheid culture that had suffered deeply. And in that apartheid culture that had suffered deeply, they had something called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, 
Or you would have mothers get up and tell stories of how a police officer came to their home, pulled out their husband, and and shot him. And then later, uh, I don't want to make this too graphic, but it can be very graphic. And if there's younger people listening, I want to respect that. But I, you know, there was some very horrific... The son was also killed in a very horrific way. Mm-hmm. And to have that mother later on in Truth and Reconciliation in the midst of her suffering saying, I forgive you, when she looks at that police officer who killed both her husband and her son, and she says, I forgive you. And the judge says, well, what would you like to do to bring justification for this? And she said, well, uh, I will never have my husband and my son back. So I want him to know, number one, that I forgive him. Number two, he took my son, and I want a son. So I'd like to set him free to become my son. Hmm. And that would mean he would come over to my home every Sunday and have a meal with me at my house. Hmm. That's powerful. And that's the theme of adoption or sonship, that we are part of a family, that God has adopted us as his sons and his daughters, and that we're part of a family, not because of what we've done. We've done some horrific things, and there's a lot of suffering. But seeing that the cross has reconciled that, and the people who were formerly enemies with one another, white and black, can now come to a place where they are one family. And he's adopted as a son in her home because of the finished work of the cross. That's powerful. And that's the type of family that God desires, that he's longing for us to live out. So could it be for such a time as this in America that we, his people, have an opportunity? I mean, just one person. If each, if each of us just built relationships with people of, of different backgrounds, different races, different... You know, uh, let me just correct that. I don't think there are different races. I think there's one race, Acts chapter 17 says that God created from one man and there's a, such a cultural emphasis upon many different races but I believe there's one race and the Bible is very clear that it, racism has no place in the Bible and so how do we as the church really enter into that conversation we have a zoom call that we work with with multi-ethnic conversations where we have people join us and discuss how do you engage this conversation because a lot of times we don't know how to do that and we're so afraid of offending that we don't say anything. And how do we really begin to engage this conversation as a family, have a family conversation around the table? And that's what we're helping people to do. You know, as far as entering into someone else's suffering, um, so I can relate, you know, we can relate to that, someone's suffering. And something that's just coming to my mind is um, a friend that I know, and um, he's just overwhelmed with life. It's almost like he's in a life he can't handle. Mm. And so it's like, um, you know, when we're in situations like that, it's it's kind of like we know the answers. Like if I was him, I would do this, I would do that, I would do that. But I just can't fix it for him. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'm, um, so as far as like entering and walking with him, um, you know, when we, you know, just, it's, we just can't say, you know, here's your list. You get, you know, we can't fix his life. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any uh, thoughts about um, just relating to people in a way like uh, that's helpful to them and uh, mm-hmm. where we're kind of sharing in with them on their journey? Or? It's a great question. And, you know, my wife and I practice SOS, uh, 
which stands for solutions or sympathy. <laughs> and so when we listen to one another, we'll often say SOS. Do you want a solution or do you want sympathy? And sometimes people don't know, but I would say probably 90% of the time, as I've seen and traveled the world, that most people want sympathy. Uh, most people just want somebody to listen to them and enter their story. So often what I'll do with people is I'll just say, tell me your story. For instance, when I was in Muscatine this weekend, we went out to Muscatine Family Restaurant. And the owner of the restaurant is from Macedonia. The, uh, the waiter was from Kosovo. And the dishwasher was from uh, Nigeria. And the theme of that is, I, at the end I just said, tell me your story. And... Uh, boy, I had an earful. And I so much so that I said, I got to come back later and listen to your story because I don't have the full time right now. My wife's waiting at the door. And, and I think that's a key part of it is how can we be active listeners? And uh, I know the Holy Spirit's at work in my life, a talker when I am quiet and I listen. <laughs> and so I think there's that dynamic of just listening to people and not trying to provide the solutions, especially in our Western culture, mm -hmm. just entering into people's pain and active listening in such a way where um, they're able to communicate. And, and I've just gone through a coaching, you know, I've got coaching um, experience in, in the sports world and, and I've worked as a chaplain for many years. And what we try to do is use uh, more of an inductive approach where you ask good questions. And, in, and generally what we've seen in our American culture is more of a deductive approach. We want to ask questions to get people to a certain answer that we think is correct for them. Mm -hmm. uh, but the inductive approach is very helpful, especially with the millennial generation that wants to discover and figure things out for themselves. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's great. You know, I like what D.A. Carson says from Trinity. He says, if I'm 70 years old and if I had my life to live over again, I'd invest in millennials today. He says, I think millennials are, are the generation that really knows how to have compassion on people. Hmm. They're looking to listen and have sympathy as opposed to solutions. Mm -hmm. And Will, you and I in our generation, we probably had more solutions and provided more solutions, and so did the generation before. But this generation seems to have a capacity for building community and doing that with empathy and sympathy and compassion. And I really value that about this next generation. And I think we're going to see some of that. And there's some of that transition happening today. And so I'm very encouraged at this younger generation that wants to enter into people's story and enter into people's suffering in such a way where it's not about solutions. It's about community. And I, I, there's that theme that keeps coming up. The community transformation happens not because we have the solutions, but because we're walking together in the midst of the difficulties. And and we saw that, didn't we, with George Floyd's death. We saw people walking together in the midst of suffering and saying, how do we have justice? And I like what Tim Keller does. He talks about private justice and public justice. And the reason why we have so much gridlock in America is because you have a very individualistic private view of justice. You have a very communal public view of justice and the two are hitting heads. But what we have through Christ is perfect justice. And that's what everybody's longing for. They're longing for perfect justice. And so I think helping people understand that dynamic between private justice, public justice, 
and perfect justice is really helpful to enter into their story. And that just takes time. When we listen to people, I listen and I think, okay, is this person struggling with private justice? Are they struggling with public justice? Do they really know perfect justice of Jesus Christ? And that that framework has helped me to enter into people's story and enter into people's suffering, to understand that private justice, that public justice, but the ultimate that every single heart in this world is looking for is perfect justice, to the point where most secular leaders say there is no perfect justice. We will never have perfect justice. And in a fallen world, yes, that's true. But uh, through the cross and what Christ has accomplished, there is perfect justice. There is a hope. And by that, you're referring to um, reconciliation with God. That's right. That's exactly right. Yes, thank you. Um, Are you familiar with, like, some of these groups that take, take place in St. Louis area? They're groups of four, and I think it's a men's movement, mm. and they go through um, Greg Oden's book, Discipleship Essentials. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, so I, my brother has been doing that it's, in, in it's a few It's a great years, resource so. that many people have used. So. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and then you mentioned um, Navigators and CBMC. Um, I'm familiar with Nav Publishing. Mm. Um, so are those... Um, good resources and tools and um and i'm I'm familiar with the christian businessmen's type of thing too yes but i'm not super familiar with it is that they're all very emphasized and they they all very strongly emphasize a life on life one-to-one disciple making okay and so what we often talk about even in our our evangelical free church structure is is yes we have a church structure of a large group setting But we also need to have a private discipleship structure for each person Mm -hmm. where we have the large group, the community, but also the private. And that's that perfect justice that I'm talking about, bringing that together. So you have both the private disciple making, the life on life, the one to one, the the navigators or the CBMC structure. And by the way, the CBMC, they do an incredible job of, of... of multiplication where Paul teaches Timothy who teaches faithful men who teach others hmm. and they do that in the marketplace where they meet with small group life on life one to one Bible studies many of them meet in here at Panera early in the mornings before they go into work and it's a very strategic way for men to be discipled most men you talk to today have never been discipled they've never had another man come alongside of them and help disciple them in how to be able to, to live out the basics of the Christian life or how to walk by faith in the midst of a spiritual battle. That's why the book of Ephesians was written. Uh, how do we walk by faith in the middle of a battle? And life is a battle. And so just having a mentor or a leader, or a, an older Paul in your life that will disciple you. And so we talk about that, having a, a Paul in your life, being a Timothy, and then having faithful men. And, and then it's that one-to-one-to-one type of a life. And, and so, again, my dynamic is how do I help create disciple-makers, multicultural disciple-makers? So I have, we have a multicultural team, an Acts 13 team, where Renato's our Hispanic leader. We have George, who's a Burmese leader. We have Andre, who's our African-American leader, and, and Warku, who's our African leader. And, and we help... We help mobilize churches to know how to be able to make disciples amongst all people. How do we cross cultures? How do we enter into other cultures? And how would 
uh, how would we, how can we learn from from other cultures in a way that we reflect the image of God? God has created us unique. I mean, again, we we all come from one man, as Acts seventeen says, but He's made us with unique family cultures, and so He loves to display His glory and radiance with variety, and so He's doing that, and so. Um, yeah, the dynamic of being able to live out that one-to-one is is both. It's is we live it in a big group church structure, but we also are training disciple makers. Now, the actual hard part, it's pretty easy for people to go to church and sit and listen on a Sunday. But the dynamic is how do we live that out in maybe a small group discipleship essentials? And how do you rub off on one another as men, you know, or... Um, we often would laugh in South Africa about working with World Cup because when we'd have pastors play one another, these pastors that were supposed to be the holy guys up front on Sunday, when they get in the soccer field, <laughs> things change a little bit. And, you know, there's a whole lot of repentance going on. And that's the dynamic of being real. How do we really live out where there's gospel transformation from the inside out? Mm-hmm. And that it's easy to put on robes and look righteous and 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 say the right things but how does our word and deeds match up in such a way where boy i really blew it on you know i got so competitive with you would you forgive me that's so refreshing to hear when there's uh, that type of repentance and reconciliation and that's that's the dynamic that you know that discipleship is about how do we live our lives together in such a way where we can be authentic and real and we don't have to be posers we're free from that. We don't, we don't have to be Pharisees that put on masks and pretend. We can be real and let the joy of Christ flow through that. So I think that's a, a key part of the disciple-making process. So one of the joys that I have is learning to be discipled by my African-American brothers. I mean, they disciple me. They teach me. My Burmese brothers are discipling me. Uh, my Asian brothers, I just spoke at a Chinese Christian church here, and boy, they're teaching me. And I think that's uh, that's the learner's attitude that I want to have as a disciple, because a disciple is simply a learner. And so do I have a learning attitude, or am I a Pharisee that basically says, I know everything, and I'll come and teach you? No. You know, as a leader, a leader is one who's a servant who, who learns, has a learner's attitude that comes alongside and wants to learn, is hungry and thirsty. And that's something I hope I never get over, Will, is the reason why I came to faith in Christ was because I was hungry and thirsty. And now almost 40 years later, what's different? Yeah, there's been a lot of experience and a lot of roads the Lord's taken me down, but I'm at the same place with the gospel. Every day I wake up hungry and thirsty. And the reason why I give this gospel away is because I need it every single day. That I'm a beggar telling other beggars where to find bread. And Jesus is helping me to see more and more his glory in the midst of that. So it's, um, you're giving it away because you need it. It's, um, I mean, I can, even Paul, he he kind of speaks about, um, he's still yearning or searching or striving for that for which God called him. So it's, um, and part of that feeding ourselves is um, feeding others. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yes. Uh, okay. Yeah. That that word and deed in such a way that um, yeah that it's not just words but 
am I humbly willing to live it? Am I humbly willing to go to another family and, and live out and, and welcome them and love them in the midst of their struggle and suffering? Um, <clears throat> you know, to start a ministry today, all you really have to do is ask a couple questions of people and you've got a ministry going on. <laughs> Tell me your story. Uh, for instance, yesterday I, I was uh, meeting a Bosnian man and uh, I was over down in South City and and we work with, I mean, St. Louis is the third fastest growing foreign-born city in America. And um, so we have more internationals coming into the city growing faster than other cities. I think Sacramento, California is number one, Portland's two, and then and then St. Louis is number three. But And we do a lot of work with internationals uh, in the city. And so uh, I was down in South City yesterday and I met this Bosnian who runs a, a grass cutting business. And uh, and we were just, he was older gentleman, his kids are older and gone. And, uh, and so my wife and I, once a month before COVID hit, would go to the mosque in, in Rivas Barracks. And Imam Eldar and Imam Eldin have become friends. We've actually had a people of peace meeting where we would get together where uh, 15 Christians and 15 Muslims would come together and, and study the Quran and the Bible together. Uh, but to do it in a way where we build understanding of one another and we listen to one another. So yesterday I was talking to this gentleman and I'd never met him before. And, but I, I said, you know, we've probably had dinner together. And he's like, what do you mean? And I said, uh, well, I come to your mosque uh, the first Saturday of each month. And I think you and I have had dinner together. <laughs> and we were just randomly meeting. Uh, I was picking up some furniture and... and uh, and he was too, and so uh, he's like, yes, we probably have had a meal together. And so we started talking about Bosnian food, and you know, there's three international languages to build bridges. Uh, in America, we really need, to, my friend Jerem Bars from Covenant Seminary talks about tearing down walls and building bridges. And how do we do that? How do we do that effectively? And so uh, I, I said, yes, we probably shared a meal together, and those three international languages are food, Food is a great way to build bridges. Music, uh, entering into people's lives with music, you don't need to speak. In, and then sport, and we've seen that. 80% of the world plays sport. And so that's why we work with what's called Ready, Set, Go. People could go to readysetgo.world and see that we're in 205 nations around the world and using sport to make disciples. Hmm. It's a disciple-making ministry. We have our Cup of Nations, which is a, a tournament we run for 10 years here in St. Louis, October 24th. And uh, we basically bring the nations together to play soccer. And so Samir, who I met yesterday, his sons play soccer. And, and so we start talking about soccer, and it becomes that bridge for us. Uh, and, you know, our Bosnian friends here in the city, they love soccer. Um, and so uh, I have an inflatable soccer field that's the size of a basketball court that I take around to schools and we build bridges. Uh, we teach ESL with a lot of uh, the schools here. We've been running an ESL program at Carmen Trails with soccer. And the teachers say, you must come back. The, the boys will not come unless there's soccer. <laughs> so, uh, so soccer helps become that bridge that builds relationships to help coach the teachers to coach them in English. So a lot of the kids say, you know, and we've been there six years, so we've seen kids started as kindergartners and then graduate to sixth grade. And, you know, they say, you helped me learn English. And when they first get there in kindergarten, their English was very minimal. By the time they're in sixth grade, they're, they're sharp. They're teaching their parents. So um, 
and you know, Carmen Trails is one of the most multicultural schools. Uh, I mean, I think it's 53%. So what we're seeing in America is I think right now there's five majority-minority states. In other words, Anglo is no longer the majority in those states. And we're seeing that happen more and more, where a lot of our schools, Carmen Trails, Parkway School, is actually 54% non-Anglo. And so you're seeing that trend happen in America. And um, we're excited about what God's going to do. I'm excited about this millennial generation that seems to to get community and understand how to live out community. But I think there is a shift going on in that. So how do we enter into that? I think it's that life-on-life discipling where people are just building relationships. And it's all about relationships. I mean, when I help work with Panera Bread Company, we talked about it was location, location, location. In ministry, it's all about relationship, relationship, relationship. How do we build relationships in such a way where we see transformation and not just information? You're speaking of different cultures. It seems like maybe one of the toughest cultures to cross into might be just the suburban bedroom community mm, culture where yes. everyone stays inside, you know, and and um, are just pretty happy with their media and so forth, and yeah. it's just hard to connect. Um, and they come home and they open their garage door, they close it, and that's yeah. it. You know, yeah. people aren't building relationships. So. Yeah. Um, so, as far as bridge building, yeah, I can see that. Um, I've uh, I've joined in with a men's meetup group, um, and um, and we're all from different circles. And I, I think I'm the only evangelical church going person in the group that I've met so far. Um, and it's really neat because we do talk about everything. And I I, I explain my worldview, which is you know, the Christian story. And, um, but then, um, you know, many of the people I talk with, um, their worldview is totally different. They might not, I guess they'd be non-theists. They, you know, they just have no reason to believe that there's something beyond, or if there is, you know, beyond what we just see and touch and feel. Yeah. Um, or if there is, it's mysterious and it's not anything like, you know, like what we think of as far as God. Mm. And um, and they're just really... Um, so I'm glad for the conversations because yes. we just talk about it. And, and they're, they're decent. Um, I, I really enjoy them. They're decent people who are very fine with me and my beliefs. And um, so we have a good understanding, you know, and I'm able to talk with them about just what the gospel is. Mm. And... Um, but um, it seems like... Uh, you know, sometimes what I'm, uh, the way it, it is, though, that, um, okay, well, I, I believe this, and you believe that, and uh, we just go on with our lives. We have relationships, but the gospel doesn't seem to be compelling in these people's lives, or something like, I guess that would be the word for it, or, um, so I don't know. Um, so when these bridges are built, of course, we can't make someone come into the kingdom of yeah, God. That's right. And it, it might be that we just continue to walk in that relationship and then whatever God does, God does. And mm-hmm. we just don't know. Um, but um, do you have any... Um, so, I don't know. This this Thursday... Your comments are right on, Will. I appreciate your comment. Go ahead. I don't want okay. to interrupt you. <laughs> this Thursday, I'll be meeting with uh, a... Um, 
person for a podcast, and he's a part of the Mormon Church. Okay. You know? So we'll, we're, we already talked about, you know, we'll be talking about our differences somewhat, you know, and discussing them. But um, sometimes we are so um, tolerant in our society of like, uh, well, you, you know, you believe this, I believe this, and we'll just get along. And that it doesn't seem like there's no, um, well, we got to wrestle through this because these are two opposite things and they're very significant. Mm. So what's your experience been like? Um, do you try to, um, do you, are you just content with that? Well, we have a relationship and you believe this and I believe that and well, let's just go on or, or do you have any other thoughts about it? Or? I appreciate your comments on that. And I, again, going back to this theme of, uh, the individual structure in America. Yeah. And I think that probably may be at the root of it. But yeah. let me go back to the sense of community and family that we talked about as well and entering into people's suffering. And I think the suffering becomes that bridge between the individual perspective and the community perspective where we really enter into people's suffering because everybody, honestly, suffers in one way or another. So when we enter into people's suffering in such a way where they're honest enough with us and we build that bridge, and there's nothing like time. It just takes time to build trust. Mm-hmm. And um, and so, you know, looking at relationships from the eyes of the Apostle John, if you read First John, Second John, Third John, what comes across very strong, even in the Gospel of John, is love and how he loves people. And I think John really got it. He really understood how lavish the love of our Heavenly Father is, how much he loves us, and how much that love makes the idols of this culture that we cling to to find our identity in just fade away. And when we live like that in a way that shows the love of God, where we really love people, where, you know, I'm on different biking teams, and biking is a great social distancing sport because you could social distance, but you could still talk, especially if you're on a 50 to 60 mile ride. And I had a great talk with a friend of mine who's Catholic, and we had a great talk. He asked me three great questions. We got a long way to ride back and forth. But, you know, I just said to him, you know what, Paul, I, I value your friendship. And uh, as a friend, and I want you to know how much you're loved. And, and so who is God's plan for him to know the love of God? Right then it was me. And a way for me to know that I'm listening to you, that I'm learning from you, and I want you to know the love of Christ. And so really my role these last 40 years, Will, has been just to... To let the love of Christ flow through me. Lord, just show your love, your lavish, gracious, forgiving love to others. And I fail at that miserably many times. But there's times when the Lord really does that well. And uh, helps people to see. And I've, I've seen people just come to a place of tears. Where uh, they said, nobody's listened to me in America. And I've just needed somebody to listen. And you've been that for me and they're so wide open Muslim friends that would say that Hindu friends Buddhist friends that have said that and um, they come to a place where they they can they can do the performance that their faith has required of them but they don't know the freedom that comes through really being well loved hmm. they're trying to earn that love through that performance as opposed to recognize that that love flows freely in what's been accomplished for them already at the cross. And so if we look at Revelation 7-9, that Jesus is calling people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation, that's already done. He's already done it. So have, are we receiving that? Are we entering into that? Are we trying so hard to get there and to do that? 
And so I'm very free in this will in the sense that I know that Jesus has already done it. And I just am following him and I'm saying, okay, use me today. You have a plan. You know what the plan is. I want to be tender to walk with you and not miss an opportunity today that you have for me. So it's that dynamic of being willing to say, even in the midst of COVID, okay, here I am. I'm willing to take a risk. Send me where you want me to go, but let the love of Christ be seen through me. Well, you've got a glow about you, which is great to see. And, uh, and that's that glory that we're talking about. How does the glory of Christ shine through us in a way where people say, you know what, I can see something different in your eyes. There's something of substance. And what is it that really drives you? And I think as time goes on in relationships, that happens. I think people will say, wow, I really want to know the love of Christ. And I think it just takes time, Will, and that's that sense of community. There's nothing like time. I'm not sure what's going on. Got a little static here. Cool. So, you know, you're, you're, I think you were mentioning, like, sovereignty, that God has done it... Um, you might be referring to like uh, his sovereignty and salvation, and that he, um, and perhaps he's purchased a, a bride already, and it's just coming out. Uh, in, you know, progressively, we're just seeing the, his bride gather together. Um, is um, now at your your message on Sunday, you. Um, at one point, you referred to um, the message being um, Jesus has died for your... Jesus has forgiven you already, or something along those lines. So, um, is I can kind of see um, that as like there's a biblical basis for that because Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, he says, when you heard the message of your salvation and you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. So, like... They heard about Jesus' love and forgiveness, but um, from like a, a background, you know, that kind of has, that's kind of related to the five points of Calvinism and so forth, you know, there's the whole idea of particular atonement, like um, can, or definite atonement can, um, so, so it makes me wonder, it makes me hesitate a little t- bit sometimes, you know, to think, um, that that would be an appropriate message that, you know, Jesus has forgiven you. He's died for you. He's paid the price for you. Um, but do you have any thoughts about about if that's... Okay? So just to clarify your question, are you talking about atonement itself, limited atonement? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, I was just reading this morning in the book of Acts uh, 13 that it says that as many as were appointed yeah. to faith... Uh, came to faith. And and that's the point of the family, is that, uh, you know, as Acts 13 was communicating in Paul's message, the, 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 the Gentiles were rejoicing because uh, they, they were receiving grace in Acts 13. They're like, yes, thank you, Paul. It's great to have you here. And the Jews were ticked off and upset. They were Judaizers because they said, you must perform. And if you're not performing this, um, then... And God knows that. And look at Luke chapter 15 where you've got two brothers. 
you know, you've got the wild brother who's living the way he wants, and uh, and then you've got the very righteous brother. And Jesus, the context was to the Pharisees and the scribes. And there's a sense of this that even in the church we can miss grace. And you're right. So often in, in the in the West County area we can uh, have it all together, have the perfect job, the perfect family, the perfect church. But we don't know the grace that really has transformed us from the inside out. And so I believe that uh, God does know those who are his, and he will call those who are his, just as we saw in Acts chapter 13. But I don't know those. God does. And so uh, the dynamic is, am I willing to, to live out my life in such a way where I'm not, I'm not the one choosing like the Judaizers and saying, well, you're Gentile, so I'm not coming to you. Uh, I believe, as Revelation 7, 9 through 12 says, that God is drawing people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation to himself. And the message of the gospel is for all people. And so if it's for all people, then I'm going to be about building relationships with all people. And that's what I have the privilege to do. So I work in, um, in Arkansas, Missouri, Iowa, and South Dakota. I was just on the phone talking about Native American ministry that we can be building bridges in Native American ministry. I was just on the phone talking about Reimagine Ferguson, and we've got a network of key leaders from many different backgrounds, many different people groups, black, white, Anglo, Asian, that are helping to reimagine what Ferguson can look like and how we can, how we can see our city flourish. I mean, that's a key theme, that when the gospel is transforming us, it's not just making us right or making us alive but we see flourishing we see a harvest we see abundance and that's what we think we could see here in our city of st louis my good friend andre and i are working together he's planning a church in lovejoy illinois and uh lovejoy is the first african-american town in america but it's been overtaken by the entertainment industry where a lot of strip joints have come into that area and he's had people from the community come and say, you know, help us, help us plant a church. And so we've worked with Curtis Francois Gateway Speedway, and we work with Jackie Joyner Kersey at JJK, and seeing a, a, a community over there where on the east side we're working to build community. That's what we're looking to do in Ferguson as well, a community where we're working through, you know, coffee shops and ways that we can start uh, a a camp program up and, and, and see some sport really develop uh, in a way that really builds community and that we see some of those walls come down and bridges built and, and families and relationships. Um, and so, I, you know, from a standpoint of being able to see all people, what an honor that I have to be working with all people on a daily basis and, and to... Um, yeah, be able to build those relationships in such a way where God knows those who are his. And I am just following him and knowing that, you know, he has a great plan for glory that I'll be able to see someday. I don't know what that looks like, but that principle of multiplication, whereas I invest in one person, seeing uh, that person invest in others, who invest in others, who invest in others. And if you carry that through to maybe... 30 generations, we're talking millions upon millions. It's that principle of compounding or multiplication like you would do with a penny. If you had a penny a day and you doubled it, after 30 days you'd have $13 million, I think. 
So it's that principle of multiplication and compounding. As we're involved in that, and as we see God working through relationships, He does it for His glory. Now, something I need to ask you about is your involvement with the mosque, because that would be somewhere where I would think, well, I wouldn't be welcome there. Um, yes, you would. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you can come with me. Okay. So tell me, how did you first get started uh, visiting a mosque, and how do you do it um, so that you know it's you're not compromising your own beliefs um, at, through like mistakenly identifying with their beliefs, and yet you're doing it in a way that's respectful of it's them. A great question. So as I mentioned earlier, when I worked in the corporate world back in 1996-7, I had a lot of guys from all over, and I had some Muslim friends, and I would ask them about the mosque, and I said, you know, can we go to mosque together? And they'd say, I don't go to mosque very often. <laughs> I said, well, let's go back. So uh, we would go together, and they would take me, and they were like, hey, thank you for taking me back to the mosque. And uh, that was the one off Weedman Road, and we developed good friendships. That was back in the late 90s before we left for Africa. So, you know, when we left for Africa, there was maybe two or three mosques. And when we came back in 2013, there was like 34 mosques in St. Louis. So St. Louis has really transformed. And uh, we have maybe 225, 250,000 Muslims in our city. And, you know, 70,000 of them are Bosnian. And, and how do I love Bosnians well? If you go to a soccer game, you'll often see the Bosnians in their community and the Anglos in their community, and they, they don't mix. As a matter of fact, when we've gone to games and we've connected with them, they're like, why are you talking to us? No Americans talk to us. And they've just developed for 20 years their own community. So how can we build those bridges and really love one another? Sport is a key way to do that. But the other part of that is if I love them well enough, I'm, am I willing to go to their home? Of course. So the mosque is their home. They're very, I mean, especially the one off Revis Barracks. If you come with me, I mean, the way we started getting involved was uh, I went to a panel discussion when we came back in 2013. I met El Dean and El Dar, the imams over there. And I've probably been thir- to 13 of the mosques here in St. Louis. And some of them are very welcoming, very friendly. Others are a little like what you're saying. Why are you here? And, and it really is about relationship, having that relationship and building that relationship. Uh, but we found the Bosnian community to be so loving and so welcoming. Same thing with the Afghanis, the Afghanistan community, the Iraqi community, Iranian community. Lovely people. And I'm very thankful for how the nations are coming here. You know, it used to be if you wanted to go on a mission trip, you had to fly all the way around the world. Now the nations are right here. And so how do we do mission across the street and around the world? Same way, relationships, just loving people, but also going to them. I mean, the command that we've been given is to go and to make disciples. So often we wait for others to come to us. And so, uh, as you can tell from my personality, I'm a goer. I like to go and I like to spend time with people. So, um, yeah. And the other part of it is the Bosnians have won our Cup of Nations in the past, uh, our Cup of Nations soccer tournament. Mm-hmm. So uh, I've... I've just gone with a number of the soccer players as well to a couple of the different mosques. And and, and then the, the mosque on Frivas Barracks has a community meal once a month, the first Saturday of each month. Hmm. Um, yeah, and so we will go to, to just share a, a beautiful Bosnian meal. The men sit on one side, the women sit on the other, and just great community. My wife comes, she puts on her head covering, we take off our shoes at the door. We generally sit in the back uh, and we pray 
So I pray to my Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. But I also pray for my friends who are praying up front. And so, and again, like I said, we have a people of peacetime where we get together and we discuss what the Bible says and what the, the Quran says. And, you know, the Quran says a lot about the Bible. And how do you break down those walls of misunderstanding with one another? It's through time and it's through conversation. So we love that. Well, hmm. So come with me sometime. You can come okay. to the mosque. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'll do that. It's great. Um, well, I guess we'll wrap up. Um, you know, one thing that you've repeated a couple times is a person is a person because of yes, people. Yes, that's it? right. Gamuntu, gamuntu, gabantu. Yep. Okay. Yep. So I guess that, I guess if I'm understanding that right, it means that to be really human as we ought to be, it's in community. It's yes. not isolated mm. by ourselves. Yes, great comment. And I, I think that, you know, if you go to Cape Town, there's the Nobel Square with all four of the Nobel Peace Prize winners there. And at the foot of that, many people come up and they see the statues of the four Nobel Peace Prize winners from South Africa, and, and they miss what's at the foot of it. We've gone there so many times uh, with so many visitors that have come over 13 years. When you look at the foot, in 12 to 11 to 12 different languages, you have that saying, a person is a person because of people. And it's an African proverb that really communicates the value of community, that uh, we value community. We value being together as a, as a people. Mm-hmm. And we are going to find our identity as a people. Now, the positive of that, and, and again, what happens sometimes in a multicultural view is that people will they'll highly value a certain culture and they miss the weakness of that culture. And I'm not advocating that. What I am advocating is that there is one perfect culture in Christ, that we have one family in Christ, one community that God is, is drawing people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation to be part of, and that is a perfect community. We can learn still from each other's communities here, and but we can learn the fact that we are all sinners. We're sinners by nature and by choice. And as a result of that, all of our family structures, all of our communities are going to be broken. Total depravity. We have a problem with sin in our cultures. So while we may desire to have community, there may be some, some sin culture that's there that reflects that even in community, there's control or there's a sense of of not setting people free but see in Christ we don't have that uh, there's a there's a perfect righteousness that we've been given there's a perfect freedom that we've give, been given and and bringing that righteousness and that freedom together is a key part of that in community and and so that's the dynamic is that we're waiting for that unfolding of that perfect community like a rose uh, being unfolded. You see in the Old Testament that theme of covenants. God has revealed his covenant promise that he's revealing. And it's like a rose that's unfolding. And so that's that sense of community that God is, again, unfolding covenant community in a way that is rich and, and, and reveals his plan, and not my plan. I mean, um, when we again we talked about creation, fall, redemption, reconciliation, he's reconciling all things to himself and that's what the cross did is it purchased reconciliation of all things but it's 
it's a transformation process that's happening. And sometimes we look at the world today and everything that's going on and we think, wow, what's happening? <laughs> Especially in the fires, you know, you hear this word apocalypse going on more and more. But the book of Revelation talks about that, that there's the second coming of Christ is going to be like birth pangs. And there's going to be a lot more suffering. And so I think in our American culture, we're, you know, we're, we've been adverse to that. But the suffering isn't designed to lead us apart from each other. The suffering is designed to bring us together in that sense of community. And so that's the hope, is that we would learn to do that. The last story I'll share with you, and then we'll close, is that my Burmese friend, George, who's in, um, who's in Myanmar right now, uh, he just took a trip. He took food, he took clothing, and he took medical supplies to this village of Buddhists and demon worshippers in the mountains that nobody's been going to. And the only way he could get there was by motorcycles and by foot. And what motivates people to do that? People said to him, why are you going there? <laughs> why would you go? And he says, because God wants me to share the love of Jesus Christ with them. And so he went. He took a nurse and he took two other helpers to go with him. All four of them took scooters and then the road was all washed out. They had to walk a long way. And when they got there, this community said, nobody has come to us. And, and, uh, and we are so thankful for the clothes and the food and the medical supplies in the midst of COVID. You've really blessed us. What is your message? And then he shared with them the message of Christ. And 15 people in that community said, we want to follow this God. This is the God that we want to follow because he's demonstrated his love to us through you. And that's a picture. George is just a picture of, of the privilege that we have to live out this love of Christ and to build community. Yeah. Would you like to share anything um, as far as how people can um, be in contact with you or what you're doing and that type of thing? Sure. Our website is EFCA Central, efcacentral.org. And you could just go and click on Brad at Disciple the Nations, and you'll see a blog post with a lot of my guys that uh, we all work together. Um, it's our whole team of guys, and so we all write blogs, and you can, you can see that and all that's happening within our, our district. Um, you can also visit uh, cupofnationsstl.com, and that's our outreach through soccer. You can also go to United St. Louis Academy. That's our soccer academy here in Eureka. Uh, those are three key ways that uh, unitedstlouis.com uh, uh, is a key way to be able to connect as well. And then also uh, readysetgo.world is our global uh, sport ministry. And uh, obviously with uh, Japan Olympics, it didn't happen this year, so it's happening next year. So there's connections for people if they're interested to go and be involved and go to Japan. That's great. Otherwise, we've got a lot of opportunities right here in St. Louis. So. Uh, people could also email me at bwos at efcacentral.org. That's another way to connect. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Brad. I appreciate pleasure. your time. Thank you, Will. Blessings to your family. If you use a podcast app like iTunes, please give a review of Conversations About Life. Mm-hmm.